And turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you have one of Gateway's Bibles, that would be on page 148. If not, well, about a third of the way through the Old Testament, or about fifth of the way through your Bible. How about that? There's a table of contents. There's no shame in using it. We're actually going to start reading in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath the Arim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Betkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. How are you successful at life? And what defines success? Are you successful? Have you been successful to this point? What is, your, what, what is your measure of success, and, and how will you know when you've been successful? And, and then, how much success is enough? Or let me ask this a different way. How do you know if you're winning at life? That's kind of a chump question, because it sounds like I'm about to write the worst Christian self-help book on Amazon. But, you know, I think it is a, a problem in, in our culture. We've created this term, adulting. Right? And so we use this term, I'm adulting, when, when we celebrate these fleeting moments of success 
at doing life the supposedly correct way, the way we imagined adults did life when we were kids and we looked at them and that they had everything together. And we don't feel like we do. But the simple truth is many of us just don't feel like we're winning at life. We don't feel like we're successful. We're still looking over our shoulder or we're looking over at that other Instagram profile and we're seeing high school friends and colleagues and family members who seem to just be doing life better than us. But what if we've got the formula all wrong? What if our measure of success or, or winning is completely off base? And it's impossible to reconcile that with reality. In 1 Samuel 7, 2 through 17, I, I suggest that the successful winning Christian life is not defined by our externalities, by our outward circumstances. Rather, the successful winning Christian life is one that recognizes that it is wholly dependent on the power of God. Now, for a series on the book of 1 Samuel, or at least the first seven chapters, and it's a series that I've entitled Samuel ben Elkanah, The Last Judge, we've heard very little about Samuel for quite some time. We saw him grow up, and the contrast between his family and that of the high priest, Eli. We saw Samuel called to be a prophet, and we saw that his first prophetic message was to forecast the downfall of Eli and Eli's family. And that came to pass in greater calamity than could have been realized at the time, as the Israelites, aided by Eli's sons, took the Ark of Covenant into battle against the Philistines as a talisman, token. And instead they were slaughtered and the Ark was stolen. We saw that God would fend for himself. When the ark was placed in the temple of Dagon, the God of creation, Yahweh, caused Dagon's image to fall to the ground before the ark and ravaged the Philistine cities with disease. And then Yahweh orchestrates the ark's return to Israelite territory. But when it was discovered, the Israelites at the border town of Beth Shemesh didn't treat it with the reverence it deserved and instead demonstrated their spiritual distance from God by worshiping as him as they saw fit and then metaphorically by ignoring God, sending him away from them. And so the residents of Kiriath Yarin took the ark. So Samuel's been out of the story for a little bit but he comes kind of roaring back here. And beginning in verse 2 of chapter 7 we learn that things stood with the ark at Kiriath Yarin and kind of in this spiritual bleakness for some time. 20 years pass without anything of note happening. And then we read, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And the next sentence is a breath of fresh air because it begins, and Samuel. He's been MIA for a little bit, but so far, whenever Samuel has shown up, good things have happened. And so this must be a relief for us as readers. Where has he been? What's he been up to for 20 years? We don't know. We aren't given the details. As a judge and a prophet who had apparently been made known to all of Israel, perhaps when the people began to recognize they needed a course correction, Samuel was the obvious guy to call on. And whatever the case, Samuel shows up here and he has some challenging words. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. There's really no half 
wholehearted worship of Yahweh. The Israelites were commanded, as we read uh, a little bit this morning, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It was fundamental. But the fact that this is a conditional sentence tells us something. This if part of the statement, it tells us something. It, it, it tells us that there is a kind of fake holiness, a fake course correction that sometimes people go through. And here's what I mean. I, I've talked to a number of people over the years who will tell me something like they want to get right with God. Or they want to get on the right track again. Maybe that's you. It's kind of a new year. So maybe it was a New Year's resolution for you. I'm going to do the God thing right this time. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do the right things. New year, new me. But sadly, more often than not, it doesn't stick. They say the right words and they, they put on the right airs. But inwardly, nothing has changed. They intuitively understand that their present course isn't working, that they need something to change, but it doesn't actually change. Samuel tells people that if they are really sincere, that they'll get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtarot. Now there's a little bit of debate whether that's one thing or two things. Here's the deal. Clearly the Israelites were worshiping some additional gods besides Yahweh. Probably Baal in some form or fashion and probably Asherah. Baal was a generic title for a specific god. Or it could be a generic title for just about any deity or it could be a reference to a specific god like a name. Sort of in the same way that we use the word God to refer to the one true God or sometimes it just refers to any sort of pretend deity. So they use the word Baal the same way. But here it probably refers to a specific Canaanite deity, Baal, who was a storm god and a fertility god. Very popular god around that time. And the Ashtaroth would have been the images of the goddess Asherah. Asherah, in various permutations around the Near East and Middle East at this time, was a goddess of love and war, also real popular. She was very often imagined to be a consort, basically a wife or sexual partner of Baal. However, there is archaeological evidence that at some points, the Israelites may have seen Asherah as a consort not just to Baal, but as a consort to Yahweh, the Lord. And in that case, these Ashtaroth were not so much foreign gods, but they were Israelite bastardizations of true religion. And so if you change your heart, if your change in heart is legit, Samuel says, you'll demonstrate it with real life change. You'll get rid of your evil practices and you'll pursue hard after God. That's the evidence, he says. That's the proof. That's true repentance. There's no Christian living without repentance. When a person has repented, there will be tangible evidence of it. There will be life change. The wicked deeds we once did, whether out of ignorance or out of spiteful rebellion, will one by one be put to death. And the good deeds that God has called us to begin to spring forth and blossom in this new creation. 
And much of our sin is kind of rooted in these twin evils of the Israelites. Let me explain. On one hand, we worship Baal. And what that means is we choose our own God. We worship what we want to worship. Now, maybe you don't worship a Canaanite storm god. That's not exactly what I mean. But some Israelites did choose to do that. They had Yahweh. They had the one true God, the maker of heavens and earth. And they chose to worship Baal instead of Yahweh. Perhaps you worship your career. Or you worship your self-help guides. Or you worship your husband. Or you worship your fitness regimen. You know, by the way, a good idea of what it is you worship by looking at two things, your calendar and your bank statement. Because where you spend your time and where you spend your money indicate your priorities. There's a good chance if you spend the, the largest chunk of your time or the largest chunk of your money on one particular item or activity or person, there's a good chance that you worship it. What do you spend your most time on? What do you spend your most resources on? It's probably your God. Repentance then means putting the real God, Yahweh, above all these other things. Removing those gods, those those things that we worship that are downright evil. And the ones that are neutral or can be redeemed, we put them in their place behind God. The other way that we sin is that we worship Asherah. Or more precisely, we claim to worship God, but we make him out to be who we want him to be. See, God doesn't have a a consort. He doesn't have a sexual partner. He never taught that. But a God who had a consort or a wife would have been more culturally relevant in 11th century B.C. Palestine. And of course, it allows you to bring in all kinds of other deviations. Well, we can't know for certain, certain what the Israelites were doing at this particular moment. There's plenty of evidence that the worship of Asherah often included the use of male and female religious prostitution. The point is they were taking the, the one true God And they were twisting him into what they wanted him to be. They were not letting God be God. And so repentance in those cases means adjusting our image of God to the one he has communicated to us. To what he's revealed himself to be in his word. We take his word seriously and we accept him for who he says he is. And we stop trying to make him into our own personal and cultural preferences well the good news is is that israel did just that they made their profession of faith credible by tying it to true life change they got rid of the bowels they got rid of the ashtarot and then samuel calls for a convocation at mitzvah mitzvah was an occasional gathering spot for the israelites there's at least three times in the book of judges when all the israelites were seen to to gather there it was just north of Lake Huleth, which doesn't exist anymore, which is definitely the reason why you haven't heard of it. Um, Apparently, this side fact, they drained it in the 1950s because it was a huge breeding ground for malaria-carrying mosquitoes. 
and that created all kinds of ecological disasters. But anyhow, that lake was just north of the Sea of Galilee, which maybe you are familiar with, and was connected by a small river that now is just labeled a continuation of the Jordan. It was a relatively flat area, though, and it was surrounded by mountains and rocky hills on almost all sides. And so from that standpoint, I imagine it could have hosted a large gathering, and also the hillsides would have probably acted as a natural amphitheater. Part of Samuel's promise was that true repentance would mean that God would rescue them from the Philistines. That wasn't so much Samuel's promise as it was him reminding the Israelites of God's own promises to them. And following the biblical pattern of praying for God's promises, Samuel prays for them at Mitzpah. And there they fasted. Fasting means going without food to remember that it is God who ultimately sustains us. And we sort of focus on him more than normal. Tony Evans has said something to the effect that you haven't really prayed until you fasted. Not literally, of course, but in the sense that when things get serious and when things get urgent, you can step up your prayer game by fasting. We're not sure why the Israelites poured out water. The best guess is that they were symbolically saying that they wouldn't even touch water until their business with God was worked out. But more importantly, they confessed their sins. And Samuel judged them. Judges, has a, uh, judges had a number of different roles in the Old Testament, but the most important one was to help direct the people of God on the right path with God. Maybe he was taking some time to hear some of the difficult cases of wickedness or accusations of wickedness. But while Samuel was hearing their cases, at Mitzpah, the Philistines were hearing about the convocation. And they probably took it as a threat that all Israel was gathered there, not too far away from the territory that they had claimed. And so they prepared for battle. And it's hard not to notice the distinction between the Israelites here in chapter 7 and, and how they behaved in chapter 4. There, in chapter 4, the Israelites were confident. Here, they're scared. There, they boldly carried God's ark into battle to save them. And here, they beseeched God on God's own terms to help them in his own way. This is a humbled, chastised people. It's a people that's weak. And more importantly, they know that they are weak. And because they know they're weak, they can avail themselves of God's help. They asked Samuel to cry out to God for them. It's their only hope. And Samuel offers a burnt offering for them. He cries out to God on their behalf. And the Philistines ready an attack. And so we read, But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Betkar. There's a tremendous um, and, and almost certainly intentional irony here. The Israelites had rid themselves of Baal, the Philistine storm god. But it's Yahweh who thundered with a mighty sound. And the way we're to understand that is that there was an, an, probably an absolutely massive thunderstorm. Perhaps even deafening. Have you... Have you ever been outside in the middle of a deafening 
thunderstorm. I can remember one time that I just had a huge thunderstorm go over my head, and I happened to be outside at the same time. And it's intense. You can, you can yell as loud as you want. And if someone's right next to you, they'll, they'll be able to make out that you're speaking, but that's about it. Perhaps it scared the Philistines. Maybe they, they took it as a bad omen. Maybe they simply couldn't hear the military orders that were being shouted and sent out, and it sent their troops into disarray. But whatever the case, Yahweh proved that he and he alone was Lord of the storm, not Baal. And the Israelites routed the Philistines with God as the ultimate warrior, and they retook a huge swath of land and kept the Philistines at bay the rest of Samuel's life. And so Samuel takes a rock, and he places it between Mitzpah and the tooth. That's what Shen means. We don't know that location anymore, but he calls the rock Ebenezer, which means something like the rock helps or the helper is the rock. And the point is clear, though, that, that Yahweh, who is often figured as Israel's rock, his foundation and his strength, was the one who was their ultimate helper. His words here are that God has helped us to this point. Whether he's referring to a length of time or whether he's referring to the, the distance the Israelites had driven the Philistines back um, or, or maybe kind of doing double duty, he intends both. Maybe you never knew it, but this is why in, in the old hymn, Come Thou Fount, we sang, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Although, I would just make a side note here, that if you sing the lyric, the way it was pronounced in Hebrew, Ebenezer, it rhymes nicely with pleasure. When you sing Ebenezer, doesn't rhyme with pleasure. Anyhow, side note. But just as the rock was a reminder that only by God's strong help had Israel accomplished anything, so we make that same proclamation that whatever we are, whatever we've done, however far we've come or not come in this life, we owe every millimeter to God alone. And this thought, till now the Lord has helped us, is really the central theme of this passage. And I want to examine that idea from the standpoint of salvation and sanctification and glorification. Salvation is probably the, the most obvious concern in this passage. The Israelites had been defeated handedly by the Philistines just a little bit over 20 years prior. Their territory had been reduced to a mere fragment of what they had been promised by God. And of course, spiritually, they had become pagans themselves. And yet Samuel knew that the Lord could deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Make no mistake that it was the Lord's doing. The Lord saved the Israelites. And what was the channel, the conduit, that brought about the Lord's assistance in this matter? It was faith. That's why they lamented for the Lord. This was an expression of faith. And the tangible representation of that faith was their repentance. In the same way, we are ravaged by sin. And we are near the point of destruction. But... We're rescued from it, not by our own doing, but the doing of God himself. 
Previously, Israel had misunderstood this. They had tried to save themselves, first by their own power, and then they had tried to save themselves by manipulating God's power. Both attempts led to destruction. Only when they allowed God to save them, only when they trembled with fear at mitzpah and relied on God alone did they find salvation. In the same way, maybe you've tried to save yourself or rescue yourself from your sin. You've attempted to make yourself a good and noble person. You've attempted to manipulate divine power by doing holy things, like sending some TV preacher a seed offering or giving some other way or by reading your Bible or following some crazy diet. But until you say, I am a lost and helpless sinner, Lord, please save me lest I die. And rely wholly on him. The reality is you're doomed. God not only made you. He made provision for you. By taking on flesh. Becoming like we are. And dying in our place. The death that we should face for sin. Jesus took on himself. So now that anyone. Who trusts in Jesus for forgiveness. And repents of her sins. Is rescued. To eternal life. Salvation is from beginning to end the work of God, not our own efforts. And if at any point you think that you must work to bring about your own salvation, you've missed it. And like Israel of chapter 4, you are in danger of death. But the, the hither of Samuel's statement, the until now of Samuel's words, doesn't merely cover the conversion and rescue of the Israelites from their pagan way. It also refers to what we might call sanctification. Samuel prophesied to them that if they put away their Baals and their Asherahs and devote themselves fully to God, then God would rescue them. And they did just that. It's exactly what they did. But then after they did that, after they did what Samuel had prophesied, Samuel and Israel called a national time of prayer and fasting and offered sacrifices now if Samuel's words are true and we we know they are because earlier in the book it said that God did not let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground then this activity this convocation at Mitzpah was not necessary for Israel's salvation it was an activity that went beyond their mere salvation but of course, all those who are truly saved, who are truly Christians, are not content to be merely saved and then go on living their lives as they did before. That's not how it works. And so it wouldn't have happened that way for the Israelites here either. They were growing closer to God. And as they did so, they realized their need for God more and more. That is, in a way, what we call sanctification. As we mature in our faith, we become more and more like Jesus. That is, we become more and more holy, more and more like the humans that God originally intended us to be. And it wasn't just that God brings about repentance. He brings us to mitzpah, to the place of growth and deepening in our faith. Too often Christians get the idea that God saves them, and then they have to get to work. God does the rescuing, but now it's my turn to make myself holy. 
But that's not what Scripture says. It's not what Scripture teaches. So in a passage we looked at a few weeks ago from Ephesians, uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice who is doing the sanctifying work, the washing, the work to make the church holy. It's Jesus himself who does the work. So Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 8, 13, we read this tremendous promise for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how is it that we put to death the deeds of the body? That is, our, our, our sinful acts, our sinful actions, by the Spirit. It's Him who empowers us to kill sin. You take those, those three, I, di I didn't plan this as I was working through this, it hit me. Those three verses together, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each mentioned as operative in the process of sanctification. It's the triune God at work in our lives to bring us to sanctification, to holiness. So again, on a practical level, we don't fight sin by using worldly wisdom. We don't fight sin by using mind power or by mastering some art of self-control. Rather, we fight sin and we grow in holiness by utilizing the tools that the Spirit himself gives us. God's scriptures, prayer, even fasting. The encouragement and the exhortation of God's people, our fellow Christians, these are the helps that God, our rock, has provided us to bring us to salvation, to bring us to sanctification. Yes, there are things we must do, but they are things that are given by God and they are empowered by God. Even as the Israelites' victory over the Philistines was given by God and empowered by God. And yet they went to battle. Finally, our glorification is by God and God alone. We don't quite have glorification in this passage, but I think there's a, a, a foretaste of it. Glorification is that state when we as Christians receive, when Jesus returns, we, we, we receive the kingdom, our bodies are resurrected, and we are made fit for eternity. It's a participation in the final victory over sin and death. And the Israelites get a taste of it here. It's not complete. It's not final. But they drive the Philistines out of much of the territory and gain back much of what God had promised them. And they have peace at their borders. So too, glorification, entering God's eternal rest, will be reflected in entering his eternal peace and an enjoyment in Christ's victory. But even that is the work of Christ. Jesus exhorts his disciples that the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
But how is it that we endure? Well, Jesus will keep us. As he says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. In telling his disciples about the coming time of great tribulation, Jesus says that the days are going to be so bad that it would cause even the elect, even God's chosen people, to fall away from the faith. Except, except that the days will be cut short. And that's a fascinating little tidbit because it means that the preservation of true Christians, of true believers, in the company of God's people is conditional. But it's not conditional on us. It's not conditional on me pulling up my bootstraps and and bucking up and suffering through. It's conditional on God orchestrating the circumstances to keep us safe and hold us fast. He knows that there are dangers out there that would destroy us, and he holds them just short of being able to destroy us. God is actively working to preserve us unto glory. And this is an amazing thing. See, I think this is the, the real idea of success in this world is one where our lives are wholly dependent on the power of God. And you know what? Sometimes that is not going to look like everything's together on Instagram. But our metrics should not be the metric that the world uses because they're metrics that they have for what constitutes success, what constitutes living well, what constitutes adulting, what constitutes having everything together. is never more than a yardstick that can stretch this life. And this life will end. Our yardstick needs to be, our measuring stick needs to be something eternal. It needs to be something that can cover a lot more distance than that. It's easy to take a passage like this and maybe say, oh, look, they're victorious, so you're going to be victorious in everything in life. Jesus promises victory at the end. But let's not forget they went to war. And I've not talked to a single person who went to war and said everything was glorious. So there will be harsh and difficult times. And a battlefield doesn't always look like a pretty place. But if our lives are lived out as ones that are wholly dependent on the power of God to rescue us from sin, to purify us from sin in the process of sanctification, to rely on Him to hold us fast until we reach glory, that is a successful life because it's a life that is founded on the success that Christ had on the cross, not the success as this world defines it that can be taken from you in an instant. Build your life not on what you compare it to on Instagram, but build your life on what God has accomplished already on the cross. And that is a success. That is a victory that will not be stolen from you. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are 
selfish sinners, greedy sinners, covetous sinners. I, I suspect on our social media wouldn't even, <laughs> wouldn't even exist if we weren't covetous. If we weren't so envious to see what others were doing and what, how their lives were doing and how we compared to them. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we have compared ourselves to our brothers and sisters, to our friends, our family members. That guy over there. Instead of measuring our lives against the only thing that matters eternally, what we've done with Jesus and what we have given of ourselves to him. On that basis, we will enter into the bliss of eternity. And on that basis, will we find our eternal reward. Forgive us for living for things that are seen and not for the things that are unseen. Thank you, God, that you are a merciful God who rescues us and grows us and glorifies us. And thank you, God, that you are a God that is not done with us when we fail to put you first again. And we thank you that you are a God that has brought victory for us who has already won success so that we no longer have to strive for a poor imitation of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.